Today's reading is from Jonah chapter 1. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into, into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for the man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done it as pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is God's word. Amen. Now kids ages preschool through fifth grade are dismissed downstairs for kids' journey. Well, happy Reformation Day. October 31st, of course, is the day that Martin Luther put on a monk's costume and went knocking on doors in Wittenberg. It's a day that we remember that the Lord is at work, even still, among his church. It's good to see all of you this morning as we kick off a short four-week study of the book of Jonah together. This book is perhaps the most well-known of a collection of books in the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. And perhaps that's because Jonah is structured differently than the other 11 Minor Prophets as a narrative rather than as a collection of divine oracles which are situated in a particular historical context that must be understood, so therefore those books can be a little bit harder to grasp, to understand what exactly is going on. Or perhaps Jonah is more well-known because the story itself is so wild that it's just more memorable to us. But the main character at one point swallowed whole by some massive sea creature. Regardless, though, even though this is a familiar book, I think that it is one that is not all that well understood. Because Jonah, this book, is more than a story of a man swallowed by 
a giant fish. It is the story of God's mercy. The grand, sweeping, immense scope of that mercy and humanity's need of it. This story begins with a very brief introduction and a call. The first word of this book, in the first verse we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. There are a few details that we should notice here in these opening words, things that we should take note of before we go any further in this book. And the first thing I want to draw our attention to is the only background that we get on this man Jonah himself. He is the son of a man named Amittai. And for our purposes this morning, we don't need to know who Amittai is, but only that the author of this book wants us to know that Jonah was a real person, that he really lived. He really had a, he had a father. He had a family, he lived in a real place at a real point in history, and that the events of this book we're about to read are just as real as he was. Though some of the things that we're going to read in the coming weeks will seem like the stuff of legend and tall tales, they're situated in real history, and the author of this book intends us to receive them as historical events. The second detail we notice in this opening verse is that Jonah is a prophet, That phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, is a heading that is commonly used in other prophetic books. And those words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, help us understand what it is that a prophet does. Sometimes that word prophet, a prophecy, brings to mind someone who knows the future, who will declare prophetically things that will one day come to pass. And while that is certainly one thing that prophets sometimes do, it is not the main thing that they do. A better understanding comes straight out of this phrase. Prophets hear the Word of God and then they proclaim it to people who need to hear it. They are basically megaphones announcing God's Word where He tells them to do so. And this is not Jonah's first assignment as a prophet. Even though we don't know a lot about this man Jonah, we know he's been serving God in this way for some time already. That's because the only other place in the Old Testament where he is mentioned is in the book of 2 Kings, where he is an advisor to the king of Israel, a guy named Jeroboam. In that passage in 2 Kings chapter 14, we read that Jeroboam was an evil king, that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but that God had given him victory in battles in his attempt to recapture territory that had been lost from the northern kingdom of Israel, and that all of it had happened, quote, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. Jonah had seen God's willingness to be merciful up close. He knew that God loved his people, and by all accounts, Jonah enjoyed the privileged position from which he was able to see that love displayed. He was a prophet who got to deliver the news of God's favor, of His mercy, of His forgiveness. It was a good gig. So we can assume when we read Jonah 1.1 that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, that when it did come, he was enthusiastic to receive it, or at the very least, attentive to the moment he would receive his next assignment. Uh, Last week, I was in Colorado. I wasn't here with you. I was watching on the live stream from Colorado. And while I was there in Colorado, I was able to visit one of my best friends from high school who is now a firefighter and a paramedic in Denver. And I went to the firehouse where he was 
working a 24-hour shift, and we got to catch up for a couple of hours, and we were actually just sitting like on the front of a fire engine. It was, I mean, if I was eight years old, it would have been a real dream scenario. As it was, it was great. It was really great. The whole time we were talking, we were aware that at any moment, an alarm might have gone off, and that if it did, he would have to jump into action. Our visit would be cut short because he had to go and take care of someone. While he's at work, he lives in a perpetual state of readiness to respond to calls for help when they come. And in that sense, we see something parallel to what Jonah was living as, as well in chapter 1. He stood at the ready to hear the voice of God and to go and do the work that was set out for him. So when in verse 1 we read that the word of the Lord has come to him, he is attentive to it and ready to jump into action until he hears the actual word itself. God says in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. It wasn't what Jonah was expecting to hear. It's not a mission, an assignment that he wants any part of. And so, as we see in the rest of the chapter, he runs. He goes south to the port city of Joppa. He buys a ticket to a place as far from Nineveh as he can possibly go. Archaeologists think that his intended destination, a place called Tarshish, was probably somewhere in Spain, and that to get there would have required a journey of many months, perhaps almost a year. So in order to carry out his plan, he probably dropped a small fortune on a ticket to get there. He was committed to this plan. In verse 3, we see his commitment displayed for us. We read three times that Jonah set out for Tarshish instead of Nineveh. Three times in one verse, this repetition of the fact that he's going in the wrong direction. It's an understatement to say that he does not want to go to Nineveh. What early readers of this book already knew that we need a little background on was that Nineveh was the sort of place that no Israelite in his right mind would want to go. It's the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, a kingdom renowned for its brutal tactics on the battlefield, its pernicious cultural traditions, and a reputation for torturing adversaries in order to strike fear in the hearts of any who might have considered standing against its armies. From where Jonah lives in the northern kingdom of Israel, Assyria is a looming threat. It's just over the border to the northeast. It is not very far away. At this point, while Jonah is living his life in Israel, Israel is already sending piles of money every year as a tribute to the Assyrians, the price demanded in order to stop them from marching down to lay waste to the people of God. And on top of all of that, as if that weren't enough, Jonah is actually contemporaries with another prophet, a man named Amos, who wrote another book of the Bible that comes just a few pages before Jonah in our Bibles. That book is also a book of prophecy. Amos heard God, heard the voice of the Lord to declare this word, and that word was that God would one day raise up the Assyrians themselves to use as an implement of His judgment against the Israelites for their reckless sin. Amos was out declaring in Israel every day, a day will come when God is going to bring the Assyrians over that northeastern border into your towns into your cities as judgment for you because of your sin. And Jonah heard that word, and he did not want 
to go to Nineveh. Even though most people did not listen to Amos or the things that he proclaimed, Jonah had a unique perspective as a fellow prophet to know that God does not make make idle declarations like this. What God has said he will do, he will do, and Jonah knows it. So he does not want to go. He does not want to go to Nineveh. They are his mortal enemies there. It would be like hearing a call from God today to pack your bags and go to Afghanistan, to praise God and proclaim God's word there among the Taliban and ISIS. The book of Jonah reminds us that God does indeed call his people to such fearful and intimidating places. God does that. In fact, that's probably it's a scarier assignment for Jonah to receive to go to Nineveh. God does that. He gives his people difficult work to do like that. And even though Jonah was ready and attentive to the call of God for his next assignment, when it comes, he does not obey. And the passage says three times that Jonah is running, not only from Nineveh, but from the presence of God himself. This passage, Jonah 1, equates disobedience with God's instruction with rejection of God himself, which, as we'll see later on in this book, Jonah is doing on purpose. He wants to run from God. But it isn't long before his getaway plan gets interrupted. While on a ship, a terrible storm arrives, and Jonah knows that it's no accident. The author wants us to know that as well. So verse 4 makes very clear that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. and There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. This is God's doing. He is pursuing this disobedient rebel prophet with the strength that rules the ocean itself, and it is a truly terrifying storm. The sailors who are with Jonah are used to navigating through storms like this. They think that they are about to die. And these are veterans on the sea. They're used to navigating storms, but in desperation, they're tossing their cargo overboard in an attempt to save their lives and make the ship more likely to stay afloat. They're calling out in frantic prayer, looking for any sign of hope or mercy from their gods. But they get nothing in response. The storm still rages. The storm is so severe that the ship is groaning under the pressure of each wave that crashes into it. In fact, the Hebrew of this passage does something I think is kind of interesting. The most literal translation of the phrase, the ship threatened to break up. That's what most of our English translations say, the ship threatened to break up. The most literal translation of that phrase is, the ship itself thought of breaking up. It's the only time in the whole Bible, that's, anytime you can say that, that we should pay attention, it's the only time in the whole Bible that the Hebrew word for think is applied to an inanimate object. It's not, the point here is not that this ship had developed sentience. The point here, which Hebrew readers would notice right away, is a symbolic but important one. The storm was so ferocious that even the ship was afraid of it. And while all of this is happening, Jonah is below deck, asleep. It reminds me of a passage in the Gospels when Jesus and the disciples are on a ship themselves and a storm is threatening to sink their ship. And while the waves crash against their boat, Jesus, like Jonah, is inside the ship, asleep. Jesus wasn't afraid, and after they wake him up, he shows them why. 
He commands the waves and the wind to be still, and they obey him. Here in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah is not afraid either, but for a very different reason. He is resigned to death. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He's telling these pagan sailors that unlike the gods that they pray to, his God rules over everything that exists. There is no place that his authority does not reach. He proclaims what Jesus will later demonstrate, that God has command. His God has command over these waves and even over the lives of the people in the ship. Hearing this, of course, the sailors become even more afraid because they realize that Jonah's God is real and that he has real authority and that he is evidently angry with this man who has run away from him, as Jonah has already told them. So they ask what can be done to appease this God of Jonah's, and Jonah replies that if they want the storm to cease, they need to toss him overboard. He knows that this storm is God's answer to his rebellion, and he is right. If he goes to his death over the side of the ship, the storm will relent. He does not know, of course, that going over the side of the ship will not lead to his death, but he thinks that it will. And in the chapter's final lines, we see the admirable courage of the sailors who do everything that they can to avoid sending Jonah overboard. Through this passage, these sailors, these pagan sailors, consistently do what Jonah fails to do. They show kindness and concern for a stranger. Jonah, who himself has even put their lives in danger, by setting out to sea with them when he knows that he is fleeing from a just and righteous God. They pray and show concern for the will of God, which Jonah himself fails to do. While they're praying, Jonah is asleep. They fear God with holy reverence, which Jonah fails to do. And they even serve as prophets, which Jonah failed to do, which I think is one of the most interesting features of this chapter. We see that in the moment that they go to waken him while he's asleep inside the ship. They say, arise, call out to your God. And their words are exactly verbatim what God himself had said to Jonah back in verse 2 when he told Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh and call out against it. They are speaking God's word after him, and they call Jonah to cast himself down in prayer before God in hopes that he will show mercy. The irony of this scene is that these pagan sailors are better prophets for Yahweh than Jonah himself is. And lastly, they worship God, which Jonah fails to do. By the end of the passage, we see that they no longer refer to God by a generic name, but by his covenant name, Yahweh, which is indicated to us in the all-capital word Lord in verses 14, 15, and 16. They know God's name now. They belong to him now. They worship him because they belong to him. They've become worshipers of the God of Israel even as they reluctantly throw Jonah overboard. And afterward, the storm ceases, just as Jonah said that it would. It's a wild scene, and one in which God was revealing life-changing things about who he is and what it is and what it means to know him. In this chapter, God reveals his compassion, the depths of his compassion, which often arrives 
in the lives of his people, in our lives, in surprising ways, and which every person in this story needs to receive, even if they don't know it yet. God is at work in the lives of these people and in our own, though often in ways that we did not see coming. We'll consider three of them that are in view here in this passage in the time that we have remaining. First, in compassion, God often calls his people to things that they would not choose for themselves. As we've already seen this morning, it would be an understatement to say that the very last thing that Jonah wanted to do in his life was travel to a city called Nineveh. Of all the things that God might have commanded him to do, going there ranked dead last. In fact, he would rather be dead than go to Nineveh. God calls his people to hard things for their good, however. When a man approached Jesus to ask what he needed to do to inherit eternal life, Jesus answers him in Mark 10, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, and so on. The man says, I've done all that. From my youth, I've done all those things. And Jesus would, of course, been, have been justified in responding to this man, you think you're perfect? Well, you know that pride is a sin too, right? But instead, what Jesus says is not that. In verse 21, we read that Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This is not what the man wanted to hear. In fact, it's possibly the most heartbreaking thing that he could possibly hear. He went to Jesus expecting a pat on the back for his diligence in keeping the law, his lifelong commitment to obeying what God had instructed, but instead we read that he was disheartened by the saying, by what Jesus responded to him, and that he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus knew this man's heart, and he knew his bank balance too. He knows that this man idolized wealth and prestige and fine clothes and big houses, and it is because of his love that he says what this man dreads to hear. It broke the man's heart to hear it, but it was love that drove Christ to say it. There is some infinite, unsearchable, profound wisdom unfolding in the very first verse of the book of Jonah. God chose this man. He knew his heart, and he chose him. Not someone like Isaiah, another prophet, who stands before God and says, here I am, Lord, send me, but Jonah. A man who up to this point was outwardly flawless, like the rich man who approached Jesus. But because of God's astonishing compassion, he confronts our hidden idols. His compassion pierces to the heart of those who wish he would say something, anything else, but who will not share his glory with hidden sin. There's comfort for us in this, and fear, I think, because God has not changed. He's no different toward us than he was toward Jonah. He calls you to things you would not choose for your good and because of his compassion for you. He calls you out of your comfort zone to go further and give more of your life than you thought he would ask for. 
Scripture is full of examples. He calls Abram to leave his homeland and inheritance to go to the place that God will give his descendants to live. He calls Moses to return to Egypt and confront his adopted brother and to lead his people out of slavery there. He calls Saul to a life of hardship and pain as a missionary and church planter in the first century. And he said specifically that Saul was called to suffer for the sake of his name, God's name. God calls people and calls us to things that we would not have chosen for ourselves, and he does it in love. Because his compassion toward you is endless, and his wisdom is greater than your own. We will be tempted, of course, as Jonah was, to run from God or to reject him when he calls us to obey his word even when it conflicts with our own heart, as he will surely do. And in that moment, we cling to this hope that his compassion for us is what drives him to call us in the first place. It is his love that compels him to tell us what we do not want to hear, what we would dread to hear. He is at work, and his compassion is at work, even in the call we dread to hear. Secondly, we see that in Jonah 1, God's mercy is surprising because it is extended to those who we least expect. In compassion, God reaches out to those who are far from him. If we could grasp, if we could get a time machine and go back to the 9th century B.C. when this book was being written, we would grasp the historical baggage that's loaded into this chapter. We would probably react to God's instructions with the same shock that Jonah does in verse 3. Nineveh was an appallingly wicked city. It was huge and supported by massive tributes paid by nations like Israel who were being bled dry so that the Assyrian Empire could fund more brutal, bloodthirsty military campaigns in the region. For Jonah and all of his countrymen, Nineveh was the epicenter of all evil in the whole world. God declares himself in verse 2 that the evil of that great city has come up before him. It stands apart from all the other wickedness in the rest of the world in a category all its own. It demands an answer from God. But rather than annihilating this city off the face of the earth, as he could certainly have done and would have been justified in doing, God sends word to Jonah. that He is to go to that city and call the people there to repent. It's hard to imagine a people further removed from God than the Ninevites were. They are prideful and arrogant and convinced that their power is unmatched by men or gods. They are murderous conquerors. They participate in religious practices that not only mock the God of the Bible, but which also conflict with His very nature. Yet God's compassion surprises us again. It is extended to these wayward and wicked people in the commissioning of a prophet. One sent to tell the people of this massive city that God is a righteous judge who will not be mocked and who will one day answer all injustice with relentless fury. God cares about these people who are far from him and desires that they will repent of this evil and cast themselves on his mercy. The astonishing compassion of God extends to those who are far from him. We see that elsewhere in this chapter. The pagan sailors who are in the midst of the storm are praying to false gods. They're worshipers of the true God by the end of the chapter. 
Even while God unleashes a storm as part of his plan to deal with Jonah, he is graciously revealing his authority and his glory to men who up to this point have only known gods carved out of stone or wood. But most significantly, we see that theme in God's patience with Jonah himself in this chapter. His compassion extends to those who are far from him and, as we see here, those who even flee from his presence. Unlike the Assyrians or the sailors on the ship, Jonah had a compelling reason to act differently than they did. The Assyrians, they didn't know God or his law. Likewise, the sailors, they only knew the gods of their forefathers, the idols which had been handed down to them. But Jonah knew better. He had seen God act on behalf of his people in the past. He had seen him carry out his justice. Jonah knew what he declares in this chapter, that he follows the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He knew the truth of Psalm 139 in which David asks, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I take on the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He knew that there was no place beyond God's reach or where his justice will not reign. He knew that God had the right and the authority to command him to go to Assyria, yet he ran. So he is most deserving of God's anger, because there's a big difference between ignorance and deliberate insubordination. A soldier who makes a mistake might be given a slap on the wrist or sent for more training or perhaps denied a promotion to a higher rank But a soldier who receives a direct order and decides to reject it in order to do something else or who deserts their post will be court-martialed or dishonorably discharged or maybe even given jail time. Jonah wasn't confused about what God had called him to do. He did not make a mistake. He was not ignorant. He heard the voice of the Lord and he ran in the other direction. The most shocking thing that has happened so far in this book is not that God has compassionately dispatched a prophet to call a wicked city to repentance or that he has graciously revealed himself to a group of idol-worshiping sailors, but that he has not dishonorably discharged Jonah from his rank as prophet. Jonah's swift demise would not have surprised us. People have died for less already in the Bible. In Genesis 19, God is preparing to destroy the city of Sodom, and he whisks a man named Lot and his family out of the city and tells them not to look back. Lot's wife, apparently overcome with curiosity or heartache for this destruction, looks back, and she instantly dies, transformed into a pillar of salt. The deliberate and decisive insubordination of Jonah in this scene, rightly understood, leads us to assume that God will dish out swift judgment on this man. But that's not what happens. There is a reason that Jonah is not listed among the villains of the Bible, even though he is a, a deserter. There's a reason why he's remembered more for spending a few nights in the belly of a fish than for his disobedience. And it's because this is a story of the surprising compassion of God, not merely of a rebellious servant. So Jonah stands as a reminder to us that God is patient and long-suffering and merciful toward those who set themselves against him. 
He is like the good and gracious father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, who after being disowned by one of his sons, abandoned for a licentious life, then sees his son crawling back. But this father does not sneer at this wayward man, this rebellious son, but runs to him in order to welcome him home. The astounding, remarkable thing about God's compassion is that He extends it even to those who have run from Him, who have scorned Him, and who have rejected His authority, but who repent and turn toward Him again. This is His compassion for you. No matter what your life has looked like, you will never run further from God than Jonah did. You are not a greater rebel than Jonah was. You are not a greater sinner than he was. Yet God's amazing compassion is for you. So great is his affection for you that he was willing to suffer himself in order to bring you home. It was the love of God for wayward people like Jonah, like me and like you, that compelled him to send his son to take on flesh, to live among a rebellious people and die in their place. There is gospel hope in this first chapter of Jonah because God does not deal with this rebel as justice demands, but he delayed his judgment so that one day he would pour it out in full on a worthy substitute, his own son, who would take the place of all who fall on their knees in hope and confidence that God's mercy has been extended to them. Lastly, we see in this passage that in compassion, God ordains grief for the good of His people. Jonah's story is a remarkable one, as we've seen, and not just for the surprising things that happen in it, but because of the surprising ways that God mercifully intervenes in one man's reckless flight from everything that is good and right. He reached into the world, into this scene, into this man's life, and into Jonah's plan to run, and he stopped him in his tracks. There was nothing that Jonah could do. Even when these experienced sailors, they dig in their oars and they try to reach dry land again, the text tells us that they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Jonah and these sailors, in this scene, they found themselves backed against a wall with no escape route but the one that God had left open for them. They have no choice but to go where God is leading. And they heave Jonah overboard, of course. After the longest night of their lives, the storm settles down and the sun comes out, and in it all, his compassion was being poured out for each one of them. It was his love that sent wave after wave over the side of the ship, which stopped them from reaching land again, and which stoked the fear in their hearts, desperate, frantic fear in their hearts, all so that they would loosen their grip on the last idol that each man on that ship was clinging to, their attempt to be in control. In one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, The Horse and His Boy, which is my favorite of those books, if you disagree, we can argue about it, the main characters, a boy and a girl named Shasta and Aravis, discover that the bad guys have a secret plot to start a war and conquer the land. They decide to race across the desert to warn the king, but along the way, they, they become exhausted. It's a long journey. They are exhausted. Their horses are exhausted. They've run themselves ragged, and their horses are on the brink of collapse. But in that moment, when they think about giving up, 
when they think about laying down and just resting for a while, they hear a roar. When they look back, their hearts all drop because they see a lion streaking toward them. It's not the first time on their journey that they've been chased by a lion. And in that, in that instant, their exhaustion disappeared and they run even faster than they had been before. Even though the lion caught up with them and even lashed out with its claws, the kids and the, the horses, they escaped, but only barely. They thought, this is it. We're going to die under the claws of this lion. It isn't until the very end of the book when they've safely reached their destination, when they hear something walking beside them in the darkness. As they talk, the boy asks this stranger in the dark, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions on our journey? And the reply comes, there was only one lion. What on earth do you mean, the boy said. I've just told you there were at least two the very first night, and there was only one, the voice replied, but he was swift of foot. How do you know, the boy asked. And the reply came, I was the lion. I was the lion who forced you to join Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength for fear of the last mile so that you could reach the king in time. I've always loved that scene. It answers the questions that the characters have about their journey. So many questions that they have about their journey and why they were plagued by lions at seemingly every turn. It speaks to the fears that they faced along the way, and it points to a deep truth about the gracious way that God works out His providence in our lives. It is an intimidating thing, but a good one, to know that God ordains hard things for our good, because it is the hero of the story, the savior of the realm of Narnia, who is the great lion Aslan who chased these children so that they would reach their destination safely. With years and hindsight and maturity and faith, we can all see God's gracious hand, using the challenges that He has ordained to bring about His good ends. Moments of grief in our life bring us face-to-face -face with hard questions that we weren't willing to face before or didn't, didn't think of before. When I was 18 years old, I was in a really scary car accident. It probably should have killed me. If you saw the pictures of my car afterward, you would assume that there was no way anybody walks away from that, let alone live through it. But somehow I did. I walked away with just a few scratches and bruises and a sudden realization that life is short. In the years that followed that accident, I, I had nightmares about it. I would wake up in a cold sweat, like seeing the moment of impact. I laid awake at night thinking about it. Sometimes I still do cannot imagine the stress and anxiety that that day caused my parents. And I used to wonder, why wouldn't God, why didn't God stop that scary, traumatic thing from happening in my life that still afflicts me to some degree today? It would have been easy for him. All he needed to do was nudge my car back into the right lane. Nothing crazy. Nothing anybody would even have described as a miracle. But he didn't. Looking back on that scary day, I can't say I understand all of what God was doing, but I can say that God was most certainly opening my eyes and my heart to something that I had not seen yet. In the months that followed, I began to take seriously the claims of Christ. I suddenly wanted to know for myself 
whether he was who he said he was or whether or not Scripture could be trusted. It was the day that my heart began to turn toward Jesus in faith and hope. God does hard things. His gracious love does not always look like love from our perspective. Sometimes it is fearsome and hard to receive. And it isn't until years later that we can see that it was His providential hand moving in love and compassion for us. His astounding compassion often involves storms and trials and things that we could not ignore even if we tried. So as one scholar says, the ferocious storm that threatened to to sink Jonah and the sailors was not God's wrath against, against his disobedient servant, but God's tool to bring Jonah to his senses. In the moment, of course, all that Jonah saw was death. He was resigned to it. His heart was hard. But in astounding compassion, God put him through the darkest night of his life in order to shake him awake. The first chapter of Jonah is, on its face, a story about a rebellious prophet. But a closer look reveals that it is less a story of rebellion and more a story of astounding, surprising, unexpected love from an endlessly compassionate God. And seeing that, as we have this morning, we join with our brothers, the sailors, we fall on our knees in worship before the God of our salvation. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, the works of your hands reveal your majesty, and none more than when you move to show grace in the lives of those who do not deserve it. We are grateful this morning for the book of Jonah and for the way we see ourselves in its pages. As we drink deeply from this book in the coming weeks, help us to see ourselves clearly and to receive your gracious compassion with joy and repentance. We are rebels, Lord, and you are merciful toward us. Cause us to rejoice today as those forgiven and who are able to see your glory in your works of grace. We pray these things, Lord, in in the name of your Son. Amen.